This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 17, with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Ross Trithui, TE2 Engineering. What's up, Ross? How's it going? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. I'm kind of starstruck. <laughs> Ross, <laughs> I don't know about that. Ross has a pretty regular segment on this old house. That's right. Yes. That's right. Are yep. you even able to go out in public just as... Yeah, <laughs> Nobody knows notices me, but it's a cool, it's cool. It's cool. It's a it's a pleasant distraction from the day to day. So we're doing a something called Future House. It's on Ask This House and This House, um, and we're looking at futuristic technologies that may one day be used in a, in a future house. And when uh, Ross is not on this old house, he runs a mechanical engineering firm called uh, TE Two Engineering. That's right. And uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your shop and your background? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I'm a mechanical engineering by school. Went to Tufts University, got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Tufts, and then worked for a couple of different engineering firms and manufacturer, kind of got my feet wet after college and decided to kind of go off on my own in 2010. So I took the plunge, started TE2 Engineering. It was just me in the beginning. Um, and then started you know, to kind of ratchet up business and get clients from there. Uh, we're now at uh, six engineers in the office. And uh, we expanded to mechanical, electrical, and plumbing services. Do you do fire protection? We do fire protection too. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you find that there's a disproportionate share of Jumbos or Tufts graduates in our industry, be it uh, real estate or development? That's a good question. Some pretty... Yeah. Yeah, they might uh, be. uh, I thought it was Northeastern. No, I would say... We've been dominating. (laughs) But Tufts is good. Yeah, and Wentworth too. And Wentworth, yeah. A lot of good schools around here. Yeah. So let's get into a quick uh, current events topic. Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York recently passed, or there's a new initiative to reduce the carbon footprint of buildings by 40% by the year 2030. It applies to buildings of a certain size, 25,000 square feet or larger, and there's a couple other caveats, but it sounds quite ambitious. And so I guess the question to you, Ross, is is that achievable? How would a building owner retrofit his building? What are the first things you're going to think about? That is definitely uh, an ambitious goal, you know, 40% reduction in their carbon footprint. You know, when I think of carbon footprint reduction, I'm typically thinking about the operating cost of the building, right? Because it's, if we can reduce the amount of electricity the building uses, if we can reduce the amount of gas the building uses, I'm going to reduce my greenhouse gas emissions. And so by doing that, I reduce my carbon footprint. So the first thing I would always start with is the thermal envelope. How is the building insulated? You know, look at the roof, look at the walls, look at the floor, and then the next thing to take a, uh, take a look at would be the air sealing, right? So a lot of people they kind of group air sealing uh, and insulation in the same item, but they're actually separate. So we want to thermally insulate the walls and we want to air seal the, the walls and you know, ceilings and floors as well. If you have an existing building and there's drywall plaster on all, all the surfaces, how do you air seal a building? Yeah, so it used to be really challenging. You used to have to rip down all the sheetrock and you have to add a vapor barrier, spray foam, something like that. Uh, but there's been new technology advances uh, that have come out over the last couple of years. One of, them, one of the products is called Aero Barrier, making unbelievable leaps and strides where it's uh, basically, you can think of misting uh, a water-based acrylic into the house and you're uh, setting up a lower door and you're basically forcing this, uh, this acrylic to basically coagulate at all of the openings in the building. So it's going to seal up all of your windows or around your windows, all of your doors, Oh, any cracks in the sheetrock or around your electrical outlets. So you can really, you can get a building that was decently insulated and air sealed to be super well uh, airtight. What's the so, cost in something like that? It, it depends on the size of the building, how many units, if it's a condo. Is, some of the quotes I've seen is about $1,000 a unit. It's not, cool. not terrible. No. Given this, uh, you know. If you are triaging, to use a medical term, 
the first thing that you do with the patient is, is maybe look at air sealing. That's going to make the biggest impact for the lowest dollar. It depends on the building, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're if you're if the building's gutted or if the building's already opened, you can you can start insulating right away. Uh, a lot easier to do. But if the building's finished, air sealing with a with a product like AeroBarrier is definitely, I think, the the first step. I'd be interesting to see how like what buildings are in scope for this. Is it residential, commercial? I think all of the above. Because like, how do you take a co-op or a condo building that was built 1900 and require them to oh, the, in reduce terms of just the policy, by 40%. It's expensive. Yeah. I mean, it can be done. Special what, assessment. What, yeah. Well, <laughs> where do you go next? It, except it's not shared by the taxpayers. It's, it's entirely shouldered by the property the owner. owners. Well, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. That, that's usually what happens if there's a major issue oh, or, yeah, or fix for a condo yeah, yeah. association. For the arrow barrier stuff, is, is it what do you just negative pressure the house and then just see how bad it is? And yeah, yeah. Well, positive pressure the house. Yeah. Have, so have you positive tried it pressure. recently? Positive pressure. What's that? Have you done it recently on any projects? Yep. We just did it actually on this house, uh, did it on the Westerly project. So it went from, I want to say about two air changes at 50 Pascal pressure difference down to 0.33. Can you, can you, wow. can so, we break that down? Yeah. And just kind of just, you said, you sent lights. You said like Am five I, terms in like one <laughs> sentence that <laughs> right. people want to know about. Oh, you know, Pascal's, I got it. All right, so Pascal's a unit of pressure, right? So pressure difference. So what you're using is you're using a blower door, which is basically a fan, and you're forcing outside air into a building. And you're trying to get the pressure inside the building to be 50 Pascal's greater than the outside air. So at 50 Pascal pressure difference, that's the, the kind of think of the pressure difference. At that point, we're looking at air changes. How much air leaks out of the building? So the air change is the air change per hour. So if I look at it, how many air changes a building would have, if I say, like the code right now is three air, for a residential, excuse me, for a residential building is three air change 50. So that means the building at code will leak three air changes per hour at a 50 Pascal pressure difference. That's crazy. Without Pascals or pressure, I mean, how often are houses just leaking air in general? If you say you have a drafty house. Oh yeah, I mean, all over the map. You know, we've crazy? seen buildings at 15, 18 air changes at 50 wow. pascals, and we've seen buildings as low as 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3. So it really runs the gamut. And, and so if you think of it from an energy model, like when we look at the heating and cooling loads of a building, for example, I mean, some of these buildings have such high infiltration air leakage rates that uh, you know, it could represent 40% of the energy use of the building. Can we just kind of talk about... Um like when we're doing projects, we're putting in the range hood vents. Yep. Makeup some, air. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here we go. You have to do the makeup air. I knew it was so, coming. I mean, yeah. Can't, can't so, we just open the windows? Well, <laughs> not just open the windows, but you've got that. Then when we have our home energy tests, we have to be told that we have to leave a fan on all the time. Like, yeah. what's the point of sealing the house if you're just going to have all these air gaps and, and bringing air back in? I mean, it doesn't make sense, or does it? Right. So the motto is build tight, ventilate right. And so the idea is that if you're going to build um, a super well-insulated, airtight building, you got to make sure that you have proper ventilation because all the chemicals that are leaching out of every piece of you know, furniture, you know, wallpaper, paint, tile, everything is off-gassing. We don't realize it, and now we're trapping it inside our buildings. So we have to ventilate. So ventilation, ventilation comes in many different forms. It's bath fans, like you said. It's kitchen exhaust fans. It's ERVs. You know, it, it's... It's devices of basically getting stale air, exhaust air out, and getting fresh air in. And unfortunately, it's one of those things where we have to do it because the buildings are getting tighter and tighter for our own health, right? And a lot of people don't put a lot of emphasis on indoor air quality, and it's a, it's a, it's a growing issue in our industry. So an ERV is one tool to combat that. Can you 
define that, tell everyone what it is, and when is it really required? Um, it might always be a good idea, but when does the code actually say that you need it? So an energy recovery ventilator is a, basically is an ERV. You could think of it as a, a simple device that has two fans in it. One fan is taking air out of the building, and another fan is bringing outside air into the building. So you can think of it as an air exchange machine. So like one of those old school fans that I used to have in college that like one blew out and one blew in. <laughs> like that? <laughs> Just like that. But there's a core, all right? And that core is where we're exchanging energy. And so if you think about it, if I paid a lot of energy, if I paid a lot of money to heat my building and I've got 70 degree air in my building and it's zero degrees outside on a cold winter day, why would I just take that 70 degree air and just dump it outside and bring zero degree cold air inside with, you know, then I have to reheat that air back up. So instead, why wouldn't I just reclaim that energy off the 70 degree air that's leaving? So that 70 degree air leaves, but the zero degree air crisscrosses past it to go up to 50 or 60 degrees. So now I'm not heating zero degree air that's coming into my house. I'm actually only heating 50 or 60 degree air. So it's a way to energy efficiently, basically passively bring the, uh, the, the, basically the outside air to a place where it's actually going to be more comfortable in the building. It's and, going to be closer temperature and humidity wise. And when is an ERV required to be installed in a building? I always recommend ERVs for every project that we work on. But if you're looking at the code, it depends on what climate zone you're in. So whether you're, you know, where I think we're in 5A here in Boston, for example, but it, it depends on that. It depends on the, the CFM, which is cubic feet per minute, how much ventilation air, how much outside air do you need, um, and how often does it run. So you can think of it as that the bigger the building, the more ventilation you need, the higher chances that you're going to need to get an ERV. How often are you seeing ERVs in residential buildings of, you know, single families or multifamilies under 10 units? Every project we work on, we have at least one. I suppose because um, you're designing them, right? We're designing them. We're designing them. Sometimes they do get value engineered out, but we're designing them every, every step of the way. And if it's designed right, the cost on an ERV is actually, you know, the box itself. A lot of them are, you know, for a small single family, it's 1500 bucks. Um, plus some duct work, you know, a little bit of wiring. So it's, it's not a huge, huge endeavor. And I said, you know, how do you put a cost on your health, right? Because this is, you got to have a way to get outside air into your building. And this is a way to get it filtered, get it clean, you know, get it preheated, prehumidified. Do you have to put one in a multifamily residential unit? Do you have to put one in each unit or is it one for the building? You could do it either way. You can do it either way. So it depends on if it's rentals or condos and whether you want to have the bill, you want a billing to be for the whole building as a whole. And you could do one ERV for the whole building, or you could have individual ERVs for each unit that would be separate on each meter for each condo. Let's go back to just some fundamentals. You're a developer. You have a three unit, a five unit building. And the first, one of the first questions is how are you going to heat and cool your home? There's so many technologies and options available to you at a range of uh, initial costs. And then you've uh, considerations like ongoing operational costs. This is a big topic. Yeah, it's a, it, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. So should we name the systems and just go through them? Like, ooh, a, I see one on here that I really want to know about. <laughs> well, let me, before we go into like the specific systems, let me just say that what's going to drive the design of the system is going to be the siting, right? What do we, do we have natural gas available, for example, mm-hmm. or not? Do we have, if we're doing ground source geothermal, do we have landscape for it? Those are the kind of questions that you first have to tackle is the siting issue. Then you have to figure out what the client expectations are, right? Because if, uh, if, if you don't know the budget for the system, if you don't know what your operating costs are, you don't, if you don't know what, um, what prism the owner is looking at for that system, it's hard to design a system, right? So you have to have some of those upfront um, you know, 
those numbers and, and, and things understood. So let's just assume a standard three-unit building in South Boston. Let's start with the, mo- the most standard for that, yeah, which a is a, a, a closet unit, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Just a yep. gas-fired furnace. Gas-fired furnace. From, with, most of us are familiar with that. With a condenser either up on the roof or on the ground. Yep. Yep, that's tied in. So that is, that is yeah, your typical closet unit. That's, um, that is the pretty much the standard. And I think that related to that, the next step would be a combination or a combi unit. Yeah, probably the next step would be a combi boiler. So with a combi boiler, you're heating water, right? Versus a furnace, which you're heating air. And so with a combi boiler, you've got um, basically a, a gas-fed system that gives you both domestic hot water and it gives you space heating, right? And now you're tying that into an air handler that has a hot water coil. So it's called the hydroware system. And what are the benefits of that system versus so, the standard force air system? There's a couple of benefits. First, you have one gas combustion device that's giving you both your heating and your hot water, right? So it's giving you space heat, gives you your domestic hot water. Some space. Maybe a smaller so, footprint. Yeah. Smaller yeah. footprint, um, less venting, right? Because only one device has to be vented. I think those are probably... Probably it. Same duct type of duct work that yeah, you would use. The air handler's the same, um, more or less. The duct work's the same. Yeah, nothing really changes there. Yeah. So um, from there, maybe we go to heat pumps. Something we're hearing a lot uh, more and more about. We're seeing yep. more often. Yep. Uh, so, especially since the national grid strike. Yeah, I mean, that was that was a big one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that pushes a lot of systems that way. So, the heat pumps, which are uh, generally termed air source heat pumps, um, a lot of people call them ductless mini splits or ducted mini splits. And the idea is that you have an outdoor unit that is going to heat and cool your building. So it's, it has a set of refrigeration lines from the outdoor unit to your air handler, and your air handler is then producing the heating and cooling and delivering it to the space. So that's definitely, um, that's definitely an advantage over the other two units for a couple of different reasons. The uh, first reason is efficiency, right? Those systems are going to operate much more efficiently than you know, a combi boiler that's hooked up to a 13-seer condenser, for example. The other option, some of the other items is comfort. Those are variable speed units. So the outdoor unit and the indoor unit fans actually vary with capacity. So if it's really, really hot outside or really, really cold outside, it might be at 100%. But uh, when it gets to maybe a 50-degree day or something more mild, it might be operating at 20% or 30%. So you think about cruise control ex- you know, analogy for your heating system and cooling system. Is that like a two-stage system? Is that or a- Yeah, so you go from single-stage condensers to two-stage condensers to basically inverter systems, which are fully variable. Got it. So you're saying that the heat pumps are more efficient than a natural gas system, potentially? More efficient, yes, but depends on what your... If you're thinking about efficiency from an operating cost standpoint, it might not be okay. because the price of natural gas and the price of electricity have a lot to... Well, that's what I was getting at, yeah. yeah. I feel like if it's all electric, that not that what we moved away from, all like the baseboard heat and everything? Right, right. So if the price of natural gas is cheap, which it, right now it is very cheap, uh, and the price of electricity is actually higher than historically it's been before. It's I think we're up to point uh, twenty three cents. I think a kilowatt hour last time I checked here in Boston. At that uh, numbers, it's not uh, the heating cost is actually a little bit better to be on gas than to be on on the electric. But that might that may shift, right? Natural gas costs may come up, electric costs may come down, or where it gets really important or really cool is when you offset it with solar, right? So now if you put solar in your roof, now you're offsetting the operating costs of your heat pump. So you can actually get to what they call net zero or net positive, or you can get into these really energy efficient angles where you're reducing your operating costs uh, in your greenhouse gas emissions of the building altogether. Now, are the rumors true that a um, heat pump system will, in a cold, cold climate, will not work as well? Absolutely. So heat pumps used to cut out around 32 degrees. 
So everyone has a bad taste in the mouth from heat pumps back in the day. If you had a traditional unitary heat pump system, train, Lennox, carrier, you, you name it, American Standard, whoever it is, um, those heat pumps struggled right when it got cold out. But what changed is these inverter compressors. So it's the, it's the variable speed capability within these new high-efficient VRF units. And when you do that, now you can get heat at negative 13. Oh, really? Wow. So like these Mitsubishi mini split systems? Mitsubishi, LG, Daikin, Fujitsu, these, you know, typically historic, you know, Asian manufacturers, right, are shipping their products in and they're designed up down to, some of them are negative five, negative four, some of them are negative 13. There's actually one unit that I think that just came out this, uh, a year ago, it's negative 25. So the stigma may still exist, but the reality is that you can operate efficiently right. in the, lower temperatures. The people that can remember those heat pumps from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s have a bad taste in their mouth. So they're not going to want to, they're not going to jump at a ductless mini split system <laughs> for their house because they're like, oh, I saw those systems and they did not work. Why am I going to go that route? The reality is the technology has made leaps and bounds and it's so much better than it was Because we've heard from a lot of HVAC contractors. Yeah. <laughs> old school HVAC old contractors guys. that hate putting them in because they're so inefficient. The other thing too, though, is that they require a lot more training and a lot of uh, extra install steps in, in the sense that the guys that have been doing 13-seer condensers their entire you know, career, they're really good at that. They're not going to want to go back to school to get trained and learn the kind of the nuances of this system, you know, this, this new technology. Because, you know, behind, the, inside the black box, they're complicated systems. I agree. What about also just from a design standpoint, right? You I don't think they all have them. You can get ones where it's recessed in and looks like a vent in the ceiling. But the traditional um, stigma, if you will, is that you've got this big, giant, wall-mounted unit. Very, you yeah. know, a lot of European uh, style, I guess. But yeah, that's not an op. That there's more options than that now, right? right? So when they first came on the market, all they came with was a wall mount. Your typical right. white box on the wall. Everyone's like, <laughs> I hate that thing, right? This and that. So. But that's if you look at the product lines now, what they have for options, they've got low static ducted, which are like the thin pancake units. They've got the high static ducted, which are just like traditional air handlers that you would see in a closet. Uh, they've got uh, ceiling recessed, so the ones that like look like a two by two ceiling tile. You know, they've got all these different. They got floor standing ones. You know, mm -hmm. that mount like almost like a radiator. I saw one that was a picture frame that you could change the artwork out in front of it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah, cool. really cool stuff. Yeah. So now you got all these options, and so you can kind of pick and choose what you want, and you can do it room by room, you know, if you wanted to. So can you break it down for us? Um, did we miss any major food groups here? <laughs> high, high velocity, velocity. Just, yeah. High velocity, radiant. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of other. Uh, yeah, talking about geo. There. Yeah. yeah, there's a. What lot are the major ones? Uh, major ones in terms of the ones we see most yeah. often. Yeah. So yeah, we talked about the the ductless heat pumps. Radiant heat is a big one still. It's uh, it's more in the higher end projects. Because with radiant, you're not going to get cooling, right? So as soon as you go to a radiant heated system, it's going to give you unbelievable comfort in terms of you know, heat to the building, but it doesn't give you any cooling. So a lot of times when developers and when you know, built owners or builders are looking at it, they're going to nix radiant floor heat because they're going to put in a ducted system that gives you, delivers both heating and cooling, right? So with radiant floor, floor heat, I'm a huge fan. It's an unbelievable way to, to provide comfort to a building because you're using your entire floor as a radiator. Doesn't it have a negative stigma as well? Like if again, that depends very much on the installation. If somebody doesn't get it right, you're pumping a liquid through, and we all know what happens when liquids and lack of airflow meet, right? You're, you're concerned about someone putting a nail through the tubing something, on the floor or something yeah, like that, or something leaking over time. And there's hundreds of thousands of radiant installs that are going on around the country. So I I don't think 
you know, there, of course, there's going to be some issues with some uh, some installations, but um, but you think about it, it's a PEX pipe, it's plastic, it's corrosion resistant, and it's installed on the floor, uh, and you typically just set it and forget it, right? You're just installing it one time, you know, get your finished flooring on top, or if it's a staple up system, it's coming from underneath, and uh, they they work tremendously well. So, as a developer in the Northeast, what would your I obviously developers have budgets, so what would your as a as a professional? What would you put in your building that you were developing? You know, to get the best bang for your buck. I probably would go with a with a ducted inverter heat pump, ducted heat pump. Yeah, because I'm I'm not a huge fan of the wall mount units that everyone sees, but I love the fact that I can get heating and cooling out of one magic box that sits up on the roof or down on the ground. I love the idea that I can have it be ducted like a traditional ducted system. I can zone it. However, I want. I could do, you know, I could do room by room zoning. I could do floor by floor zoning. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of manipulate it so it can be. It, it's got a lot of flexibility in terms of how it gets applied. And cost wise, compared to a standard box that you, you know, forced air box that you put in a closet, what would the cost difference be? It's a hard question to answer because it really depends. Like a single zone, two to three bedroom unit. It probably carries a. Uh, 20, 20 to 25% premium, I would say, over you know, your traditional conventional system. So let's switch over to a little uh, smart home to, uh, home technology talk. Ross, you, you are a, a geek on this stuff. What's, uh, what's your favorite app on your phone right now? Well, I love my Echobee thermostat. Yeah. So I, I'd have to say... You go Echobee over Nest? Yeah. Really? All day. Huh. All day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Why? Nest has done an amazing job marketing. Yeah, and it doesn't they, have the same panache. They've got the buyers. name. They got the yeah. name in the industry and stuff like that. But I can tell you that from a control standpoint, there's been so many projects where we've specified them and we've gone in. I've actually gone in myself and turned off all of the learning functions, turned off every single you know additional feature that the, in the system nest? in the Nest. Well, oh, okay. Because you know, for I'll give you a perfect example. The Nest is trying to learn your schedule, right, and learns it by motion, right. So let's if the thermostat is mounted in a place where it sees motion periodically, it's going to stay active. If your schedule is variable though, right? And just say, you know, Monday you're home all day, Tuesday you're not home at all, it's it's going to have a really hard time identifying that schedule. So there's going to be times where you might be working from home in let's say a home office or something like that, you're not walking by the thermostat, it thinks that you're gone. And it's going to turn the heating or cooling off or or go into a setback mode and you're like, why is it getting hot in here, right? Never mind having a young child, right? A two-year-old yeah. that's oh, at home. And my wife's like, what the heck is going on here? So, <laughs> and, you know, full disclaimer, I have a Nest and an Echo in my house because I wanted to play with both and see which one looked better. And, uh, but I have to give the, uh, give the upper hand to, uh, I say to that, Echo uh, on that. From a developer standpoint, Nest is nice because it gives owners one app. You know, if you put in a Nest doorbell, yep. you have your Nest thermostat, you have a Yale smart lock that integrates with Nest. So you have one app that controls everything. You have, you know, Nest um, security. security. Protect. You have yeah. Nest Protect for your carbon yeah. monoxide. Smoke, so it's yeah. like one app for everything. You know, I th- I'd say that it gives Nest a leg up. And, and Google just bought them. So, you know, Google will probably be integrating and dumping yes. a ton more money into them as well. So absolutely, yeah. definitely, definitely the checkbox. There's a lot to love about Nest. I'm not yeah. trying to downplay oh, them no, at all. No, I, but, I, but purely from a thermostat standpoint, I would pick the Echo. The learning is not great. I disabled yeah. learning at my uh, house. What's, what's your second favorite app uh, for home technology <laughs> on your phone? 
It's like picking That's, your favorite kid, right? I know. Why are you showing one, one kid though? Before so. we started recording, you were showing us something on your phone. Is that oh, not your yeah. favorite? Or well, it's it's up there. I mean, it's them. it's hard to pick, right? Uh, so I've got a I've got a Fubot at home. It's a indoor air quality device, and so it's measuring um, VOCs, right? Volatile organic compounds. Uh, it's measuring particulate matter. It's measuring CO two. Um, and so it's a device that's uh, just double checking that the air quality inside my house is is safe. And so, you know, I'll get a notification if it's an unsafe, you know, for example, if my wife is cooking and she forgot to turn the kitchen exhaust yeah, fan yeah. on, then uh, I'll get a, my you know, phone will, you know, ping and say, hey, you know, air quality is, uh, you know, unsafe level of this and that. So I wouldn't say it's, you know, my, my top, but it's a, but it's a cool one. Where do you place a device like that? Just central, central to the house. And you know, if you have, it depends on how much square footage you have. But typically, in, in most houses, just uh, you know, in the living room or central to the central to the to the to the main floor. I'm a huge proponent of the smart lock. I think bang for the buck, it's the best piece of home technology there is. So I have an August smart lock at home. Yeah, I got one too. Yeah, if uh, if we have visitors, I can text them a key. Uh, you can give a key and take it away if your dog walker comes, or uh, you know, you 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 no longer use them. You can remove the key. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It I, senses you're coming with um, geofencing. Yeah. Do you yeah. use any of these for your projects to have your contractors check in? <laughs> I, I, I do put them on all my projects, but not during construction. <laughs> no, they're cool. They're really cool. I think a lot of people are a little sensitive to the privacy aspect of it, which I think is why maybe the security side of it might not have mass adoption yet or might not have as fast of growth. The thermostat seems a little bit more less concerning, right? Versus the, mm. the door lock on a building. But I'm a huge fan of it. And, you know, you think about, I, a lot, I get those questions a lot. And, you know, these things, a lot of them have a, what's called 120-bit encryption SSL, which is the same type of encryption codes that banks use. So if you think about it, if someone's really, really dying to hack into your, your, your door lock, you know, they're better off, to, you know, spending yeah. their time elsewhere. I, I, <laughs> I think even those products are victims of the negative stigma. And it's probably like the first generation of all these smart locks where it's not really a smart lock, you know, it's just something you punch in and, Right. I think Let's, as consolidation happens, these devices. Let's be honest, quality, someone right? wants to break into their house, they're not coming through the front door. <laughs> yeah, dude. Locks <laughs> only keep out honest people. <laughs> yeah. You know? True. It's true. It's true. You know, I've seen on my Instagram feed a few other things. There's this one device, I forget what it's called, but it attaches right into your panel and it's supposed to tell you how you're monitoring electric usage. Do you I'm glad you brought that up. That is that's probably my favorite. Really? That is probably my really? favorite. Yeah. I thought that was gimmicky. I, uh, like, yeah, me too. You know, like good to know, but who cares? Well, how no. does it know what circuits and all that? So yeah, yeah so enlighten us on so, this one. So the product uh, came out of MIT. It's called Sense. Yes. I've got one in my house. We showed it on this old house. Unbelievable product for measuring uh, electricity usage inside your building. So not only will it give you kind of the aggregate total electric usage of your building, real time, a million times a second is what it's sampling at. So you get some crazy level of data. And then on top of that, um, you can it starts to learn your house. So every electrical device in your house, like a toaster or an oven or whatever, has a signature. So it's actually like a fingerprint. And so when you turn your toaster on, it actually sees that it's a toaster signal that's been, you know, based on the voltage, the amperage, and it, and um, it's its characteristics. It learns to say, hey, that's probably a toaster. So then it's going to notify you and say, hey, we just think you turned the toaster on. Is that the toaster? And you say, yeah, that is actually. So over time, it starts to learn your, you know, your operation and your appliances in your house. And what's what's really cool about that is it informs behavioral changes, right? Because now if you left your heating and cooling on, you can see, you know, my electric watt, my wattage is off the charts. Why is it on? I'm not home. Oh, it's I left my heating and cooling on, right? That's really cool. I, where, and this plugs into where? 
So it's, it's got two clamps that clamp on to your two hot legs coming into your electric panel. So if yeah. you think about an electric panel, you have an L1 and an L2, two, you know, two hot legs and a neutral. So think of a clip that goes on L1, a clip that goes on L2, and then it, two wires that plug into a breaker. Well, yeah, this was, so this was installed why I was by a licensed electrician. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I see this. Don't on, tell you uh, what, but I installed my own. <laughs> I see this online. I'm like, yeah, okay, good idea. Let's all start. Now, what about take the panels off? What about these? It's not going to be for your like developments or what you guys are working on, but for your own house, I think it's it's super super um, critical to have. You know, well, I think the plumbing the knowledge is power, this. right? Yeah. What about smart panels? Yeah, Mark and I saw these at uh, the IBS show this year. Yeah, which one, Leviton? Leviton. Yeah, Yeah. Leviton, yeah. So they're basically doing it on a breaker-by-breaker basis versus putting like a product like Sense that's just kind of over the top. Right. Uh, What I like about the Leviton stuff is that it's actually going to give you circuit-by-circuit. It doesn't have to take any time to learn your house, right? It just learns it from day one because it knows how much electricity is flowing out on every single one of those circuits. Do you ever feel like home technology is a, uh, a problem or a solution looking for a problem? Like... I, my favorite example we saw at the home show the uh, Alexa enabled medicine cabinet. <laughs> what do I need that? I know it's it's like any industry. There's always going to be some really quality and you know you know great great products, and there's going to be some gimmicky you know horrible marketed you know products you know, and so that's one of them. You know, I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. There's a Philips View light bulb that's out there that can go to 256 colors and strobe light. It's like, what am I creating a club in my living room? Like, yeah. I was just on. about to say that about the toilets. They've Have got some of these of, disco uh, toilets there. Yeah, disco toilets. Touchless like, toilets. The what? Touchless toilets. So you wave your hand over the top. Oh, oh, really? That's yeah. kind of cool. for flush. Kinda so cool. I'll share. I'll share a mistake though. We put this in a development. It was my. I actually thought of it. And the challenge is we put it in the powder rooms. So the, the feedback we got was that guests would go to use the bathroom couldn't figure, and yeah. couldn't figure out how to yeah. flush. Yeah. And oh, it created no. some awkward social situations. <laughs> That's true. That's amazing. That's true. Yeah. It goes in the master bath. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. have you heard of the device called the Brilliant? Like a, it's like a smart switch. Um, I'm not sure if I know that one. Which Explain it. It's cool. It's, it's almost like a small little screen and it gets retrofitted into any um, regular switch light switch light switch okay. um it has you can do multiple gangs or whatever but it has alexa enabled and it you can control you know the lights in the room with it you can control all other smart peripherals in it and everything like that gotcha. we're we're thinking about installing it in in one of our developments um cool. cuz it's kind of a cool way to connect all the rooms and doesn't it have video too? It you has, can, yeah, you can it has see video conferencing and stuff. I don't know like that product. Yeah, I, I've heard of similar ones. There's a couple of ones. Lutron, Caseta has one that's uh, it's a smart switch. So you, you're basically able to control your lights from your phone, basically a, a new um, light switch. The cool thing this is it's like integrates so you can, you know, your ringer nest doorbell, your, your nest thermostat can all be so you can say, you know, Alexa, turn up the. You know, temperature to X degrees, and it will. It, since it's on your wall, it will. It will do that and That's connect cool. all your devices within your home. What was the name of it? Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. 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 <laughs> Good name. Solar. Yeah. Is solar brilliant. Should uh, I, we've all been at Home Depot or someone's approached us? Hey, yeah. put these panels on your roof. You know, it'll make you thousands of dollars a year. And you know, my grandpa did it at one point. Yeah. I, I, is this a good idea? I'm a huge fan of solar. There's the solar that is the right thing to do, and then there's the solar that's probably the wrong thing to do. I saw kind of define that. So when you see them over landfills, right, decommissioned landfills, or when you see them as carports, or when you see them on people's roofs, I think that's a great idea, right? Where I have real you know, issues with it, it would be when they're covering perfectly good farmland and putting solar panels all over it, right? So you're just trading 
solar that creates electricity versus solar that can, you know, that can grow crop, right? So there's, there's, I think, a time and a place for where solar should be placed. But every house in America, in my mind, should have solar on it. It's the most abundant free resource that we have available to us. It's free. It shines, you know, eight hours a day, you know, yeah. or more or less, you know. And how, how's battery technology changed the game with regards to solar? So battery technology is, is making leaps and bounds. Uh, there's two main players there. There's Sonnen, S-O-N-N-E-N, and there's Tesla. Both of them are, Sonnen was the first. I've heard of Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard of that? <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. I think they make some other products. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> so cool stuff. But Sonnen was the first in that market. And, uh, but either, you know, they're kind of neck and neck and uh, the lithium ion batteries now are just getting better and better. I don't think they'll, they'll become widely adopted though, until we go to time of use rates. So right now everyone pays kind of, you know, residentially you pay a fixed price for electricity, right? You use one, you use a light bulb, you get charged for how many Watts, uh, watt hours that use that uses. Um, And right now in Boston, it's 22 or 23 cents a kilowatt hour. Until places like California, which has already changed, Texas, they've changed the time of use rate. So basically, the electricity you pay is variable. So if you're using it at 12 noon at peak times, you might be paying 30 cents a kilowatt hour. But if you're using it at midnight, you're only going to be charged 6 cents a kilowatt hour, right? So that is going to inform and change behavior. And if you, do, if you go that way, now batteries become viable. Have right? you seen the Tesla generators? The home? The, the power Yeah. Yeah, the power wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've installed some or designed some. I think that's a great feature. Can you install solar on flat roofs? You can install solar on flat roofs. You still have to give it some angle. And uh, you really want to get, uh, ideally in Boston, you want to get to a 30 degree pitch if you can. But a lot of systems get ballasted, right? They get weighed down with, with, with pavers on a flat roof and have a slight incline. But yeah, you see them all the time on tops of uh, different warehouses. If you drive around Boston, the tops of, I think, the Home Depot over here. Because uh, whenever we get approached by these guys at like the Home Depots or whatever, right. they say, you know, they ask and I'm like, oh, well, it's a flat roof. They're like, oh, we don't install on flat right. roofs. Right, it, It's just because it adds a lot of weight to the mm-hmm. roof. So you got to look at it from a structural... Well, because, yeah, because it's already designed to, you know, handle a lot of snow load because it's flat. Right, so, but if you take the snow load and you add now the weight ex- of the exactly. concrete that's weighing down and they don't want to penetrate an EPDM or, you know, a rubber roof. So they won't either. warranty it. So they won't warranty it. So you got water issues. So... I would say flat roofs are maybe not the uh, the main you know yeah. item to go after. There's, but it's still it's an it's you have a lot of area. And right. Why not use that to create energy and reduce your electric bill? Because right? I want because I, I want a roof, roof deck. deck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe do half roof deck, <laughs> half solar. <laughs> All right. So we talked a lot about thermostats and temperature, and I've heard you use the word comfort a few times. A lot of times, just because the thermostat's reading a certain temperature. I still don't feel comfortable in the space. And so can you talk about the different components that go into comfort and how someone experiences space? That's one of the mo- like most widely misunderstood parts of what we do. Um, a lot of people think of comfort as just thermal comfort, which is just what's the temperature in the room relative to the temperature uh, on the, that's reading on the thermostat. The other things that go into comfort is humidity, right? So if you got too high humidity, you know, you're gonna, it's going to feel sticky in the space. If you got too little humidity, what happens in our winters, you know, you dry out your skin, your nasal patches, stuff like that. So you need to have your humidity in the right range as well. Uh, air velocity. If you've got air blowing on your skin, you're going to feel more uncomfortable than if the air is at a lower velocity going across your body. Another one that's a, a real technical term, but it's called mean radiant temperature or MRT. Um, and that's these, a new one to me. So the example I give with mean radiant temperature is why on a winter day, when you're standing in the shade versus standing in the sun, why do you feel warmer when you're standing in front of the sun? It's the same temperature. It's the same humidity. It's the same wind. What changed? 
what changes now you have a heating object that's radiating heat to your body, right? That just happens to be the sun in this example. And so what you've done is you've increased your mean radiant temperature of your body, which means you feel more comfortable. So what are some design moves that you can do to sort of mitigate some of these factors or influence them? Yeah, so the, the biggest culprit that we see with mean radiant temperature issues is when you have a lot of glass in a, in a building. So when you have large facades of glass, and let's just say it's not maybe the highest quality glass, um, if you're on a cold day and you start to walk in front of that window, you're going to feel cold. And what's happening is that actually the window is pulling radiation. It's pulling heat from your body, making you feel colder. You don't even realize it. And so how do you increase the median temperature of that space? A couple things you can do. First, obviously, you can go with a better thermal envelope, meaning better windows. But you can also put registers, air registers, and you can put them um, close to the glass with like a linear slot diffuser, and you can blow warm air over the interface of that glass. And so you're creating like a thermal barrier by heating up the interface of that glass. And so you've increased what's called the median temperature of that space. If it's really cold outside and you're blowing warm air on the glass, will it condensate? No, it'll actually help prevent condensation. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you can warm the interface of the glass up, you're going to warm the frame up of the window, you're going to warm the glass up of the window, you're going to reduce chances of condensation. But if you're blowing cold air or no air on that glass, then you're going to very likely could hit dew point, right? And then you get condensation, right? So it's, you know, you think about someone doesn't run the kitchen exhaust or doesn't run the bath fan and the relative humidity in the building climbs. If the relative humidity climbs and it's a cold day, the inner surface of your glass is going to be cold and it will, the water vapor in the air will condense on that surface of that glass. How often are you called in like a detective to a building to figure out some sort of weird problem that's that's occurring a lot yeah yeah a lot that that sounds like one example from the glass the the funny thing is a lot of times they'll say oh yeah we're just gonna go design build and i'm like okay great you know we lost the project and then they call me back you know a year later and say hey we got an issue can you come take a look at this and like all right let me put my detective hat on what's going on let's let's go you know let's go solve the problem so what are the what are some of the most common things that a builder or developer does that you've seen that can be avoided Oh, there's a there's a long list. Yeah. There. The top, let's get, top yeah, three. Let's get the yeah. low hanging fruit. <laughs> I mean, some of them are very detailed. I'll, I'll start with some kind of maybe general ones that I see often. One of the issues I see is the lack of zoning. What I mean by that is I see a lot of buildings that have, let's say, a therm- one thermostat for two floors, right? So you got a you got a first floor, second floor, and you put one thermostat on the main floor, and you're like, oh yeah, I'll put one unit in, and you know it's it'll be fine. And there's not a fighting chance that you're going to have comfort in that building because the laws of physics are fighting you, right? Hot <laughs> air is going to rise, cold air is going to fall. And so one floor will always be not comfortable. You know, and then, you know, we see it, you know, in a different example, in a more landscape or spread out building, you got solar gain on the south side, you got, you know, cold, you know, no sun on the north side, and they group it under the same zone. And again, you'll, have, you'll never have a fighting chance of getting comfort, right? Because depending on the thermostat placement, it's either the south side of the building is going to be perfectly com- comfortable or the north side of the building is going to be perfectly comfortable, right? So you got to think about building orientation. You got to think about zoning. You got to think about stack effect, right? With heat rising uh, in a building. There's a lot of other small things where a lot of them are installer error. One of them was outside air being ducted into the return side of a, um, of a air handler that was fed off of a combi boiler. And so you think about the combi boiler creates hot water. The hot water goes through a, through a loop in the air handler. And the, the air goes across it. If you have cold air that's at zero degrees outside and it's going into your, your uh, air handler and the filter at the register actually gets plugged or doesn't get changed, you have zero degree air going in across a water coil. 
Mm, ice cube. Just a matter of time before you get it. That's a combo ice maker. And you got a burst pipe and then a flood. Yikes. Sounds unpleasant. What about noise? Do you get called in a lot? Because people say, you know, Mm. the contractor finished and my heating sounds like a jet engine when it comes on. Yeah, especially the ones that are like, you know, the closet air handler approach, something like that is always notorious for having sound issues. A couple things you can do. Yeah. First, we always try to recommend that the return has three offsets. So if you think about three bends on the return, which is very difficult to do in a closet install, but uh, in a above ceiling install, we'll, we'll design plans that has basically a 90, a 90, and a 90, and then hits the register. And the installer will look at it and say, why am I doing three bends off the unit? And they're not thinking about sound, but we are thinking about sound as just one example. And so because the three offsets, those three 90s, will knock down the blower motor noise, right? Because when the motor's spinning, it's generating sound. And that sound is basically echoing right down, reverberating right down the, the ductwork. And so if we can have three offsets, that's going to make a huge difference there. So don't put your return right out the wall yes. off the closet. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Flexible duct uh, connectors. If you learn one thing. Yeah, if you learn one thing, do that. <laughs> if I've learned one thing, it. it's to make sure that my HVAC guy pays you to sit down and teach him everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could try. I think we could you're try. the one paying those fees. I'll pay for yeah. it as yeah. long as he listens. As long as he does, as long yeah, follow the instructions. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the biggest thing. RTFM. How about some overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Yeah, yeah. Still at that time. Sure. I have a great one. Now this game, have you? Do you know Are you this familiar game? with the rules? Yeah. Okay. I've heard you're a frequent listener. Yeah, right? I'm a frequent listener. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. Okay, great. All right. I'll start it off. I brought it up to the guys and I got no response from them. What's your theory or opinion on T-studs? Have you heard of them? T-studs. Are those the, the new studs that have, the wall studs that have, uh, it's like a truss system? It's like a vertical truss, truss system. system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen them installed, but I've seen a couple of videos. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't ah. played around with them yet. So yeah, I don't All know. Right. I don't, I'm not familiar. So it's a um, very similar to a horizontal truss where you have additional load support. So the, the studs, per, quote unquote, are stronger. They also have a gap in between. And this allows you to, rather than have all of your subs running and making holes in all of your studs to run their pipes and wires, it's you can service stick case. it right through there. And then when you're doing your spray foam insulation, it goes in between and it helps with the thermal bridging or lack. It uh. breaks the thermal bridge between the inside and outside. Think of a yeah a roof truss system, but just turn it on its side and make it a wall stud. So, so. we yeah we haven't um, it's I think it's a relatively new product. Yeah, it is. I think it's out of Canada, maybe yes. Minnesota or something like that. But wasn't sure if you had any experience with it. We haven't had any experience with it. But thermal you bring up thermal bridging that is a concern, right? And that's uh, you know for the listeners that don't know what that means, if you think about a wall assembly, uh, there's going to be areas that have insulation and there's areas where you have the wood stud. Obviously, wood studs are not good at insulating or not as good as insulating as your fiberglass or your mineral wool or your f- spray foam or whatever your insulation is. So if you think about it, you're going to have areas where you have better R-value and less R-value as you go across the wall assembly. And so that gets taken into account when we do our energy modeling. Right. And in some cases, they they design like exterior insulation at that point to try and make Continuous another thing. Continuous exterior insulation. Yeah. yeah. So just extra yeah. material, extra cost, a lot of, I don't know. It's usually like EPS, XPS type of polystyrene product mounted on the outside of the building, two inches or four inches, whatever okay. it is. Yeah. Yep. Cool. High velocity systems. Uh, by the what way, I didn't, I didn't answer the T-stud. Oh, but oh yeah. I'm, well, it's I'm, okay. I'm, jury's out. Yeah, jury's oh. out. Jury's out on that one. On the high velocity side, I have to go underrated. I have to go underrated. Really? There's not many. There's not many systems out there that can have a very small ductwork 
that can be snaked into very, very small spaces and provide uh, really good comfort, right? It comes at a little bit of a higher sound threshold, right? So there's, that is one of the downsides to it. But, uh, but the ductwork sizes, I mean, you're talking about a four-inch flexible duct that can be snaked through, you know, really, really tight spaces. And, uh, and the placement of them also doesn't matter as much. With a conventional system, you want to get your air registers blowing around the perimeter and you want to get the returns more in an interior space, right? To do that kind of thermal barrier, the thermal blanket I was talking about before. But yeah, I, th- I think um, high velocity is, is here to stay. And I think it serves, uh, serves a, you know, a market you know, in, these, in some of these condos. How about driveway snowmelt systems? I have such a love-hate for them because they do amazing at doing what they're good at, right? Which is melting snow. So you never have to hire a plow. You never have to worry about shoveling your walkways or whatever it is. So that from that standpoint, it's, they're amazing. And I would say they're underrated in that sense. But on the flip side, they are an energy hog that when they actually run, you're heating up the outdoor environment. You're trying to heat up mother nature. And that's really, really hard to do. It's energy intensive, right? It takes a lot of gas, you know, and electricity to, uh, to actually, to do that effectively. So part of me loves them, you know, and, and part of me not so much. Can you, can you get around that with, um, rather than creating the energy, can you do it with, if you have the ability to, with geothermal? Or is that just cost prohibitive, just in a different sense with the installation? So you could effectively you could do it, but uh, it's going to be really costly to do it that way. Because think about it, you're taking heat out of the earth, putting it through a heat pump, giving it a boost in temperature, and then you're sending it back into the ground, right? So it's uh, it's it's something you could do, but it's uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. Let's all just shovel and plow the driveways. <laughs> <laughs> How about um, we did talk about the glass? So all glass buildings. I mean, from daylighting perspectives and from the visuals, they're great. But from an energy standpoint, they're horrible, right? I mean, you think about a, a really good triple pane window, argon filled, yada, yada, yada. It's got an R value, at best case, maybe an R10. The cheapest, stupidest wall will hit R10 all day. So from an energy standpoint, you know, they, they don't make a ton of sense. But, you know, obviously, how do you not, if you, you, know, you got the views of Boston, for example, like how can you not take advantage of that? So, you know, in the daylighting aspect. Starting to see a lot of cities banning or, or trying to dissuade developers from proposing and building all glass structures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about smart appliances? I think probably appropriately rated because there's some, you know, like we talked about before, there's some really gimmicky ones that I'm not a huge fan of, and, but there's some that are amazing. They've got refrigerators coming out that have a camera inside them so you can see exactly what's in your fridge. When you go to the grocery store, you can remember how, if, do I have milk or do I not have milk? Yeah. Right. Those kind of things. It's just it's it's a pure convenience play, but um, but it just it's 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 a you know it's a technology that why wouldn't you take advantage of? I like preheating your oven from from your phone, from wherever you are. Just turn that on. I don't know about preheating my oven why? while I'm not home. I don't know. Something Might about be a little that. bit unsafe. <laughs> uh, Mark does it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have my washer and dryer hooked up. Your so sense I can... energy monitor will be going off the charts. All right, last one. How about Alexa-enabled faucets? So are you familiar? You can say, Alexa, pour one cup of water or, you know, three teaspoons. <sighs> I mean, that's overrated. Come gimmicky. on. Yeah. Come on, gimmicky, yeah. By the time you say the word... And the sentence, you you could have done you it. Could have gotten a measuring cup. Yeah, yeah. come on. I agree. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right. Induction right. cooktops. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Huge fan. Underrated. 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 Huge fan. 
Have you guys ever used them, played with my, them? My parents have it because yeah. they, they can't get gas in their house. So my mom is a, a big cook, so she wanted induction. I find she we, think, loves we, it. we yeah, get a right? lot of buyer resistance. It's just an education thing. I'd say in an area where there's abundance of natural gas, it's, it's good. Everyone wants to see the flame yeah. and adjust it. But isn't that inefficient? Is that the whole point? Is no, it inefficient? No, no, gas. As I understand it, the best chefs want uh, induction cooking. You can fine-tune Precision. the heat and mm-hmm. um, you My know, mom boil a pot it. of water that much faster. A minute. So you think about minute. it. It's unbelievably precise. You don't need as much ventilation air, right? So now you don't need makeup air in mm-hmm. your buildings. It will, you can like literally take the, the pot off of the induction cooked surface and put your hand immediately on it and you won't get, so it's a safety thing, you won't get burned. Is the pot hot too? The pot is hot. Pot's hot. But if the pot moves, the you know, like the old electric right. ones, you literally get, you know, severely burned. With that, with this one, you don't. So uh, energy efficient, right? So it's 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 I don't know if I could say it's more efficient than gas, because gas here is, is so cheap. But yeah, I think that's a that's one that's definitely underrated. I'd say um, this has been extremely educational, helpful. Loved having you here. Cool. Thank you guys. If people want to inquire about your services or uh, check out some of your videos, what's the best way to see you and get in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way for e- is email. So that's Ross, R-O-S-S, at T-E-2engineering.com. So that's T-E-2engineering.com. You can check us out there. You can get our office line. Give us a shout. And uh, we're on YouTube as well. Instagram too? Instagram, yep. Facebook, yeah, we're on all of them actually, yeah. Ross, oh, thanks so much. Can't wait to be on uh, this old house. Yeah. Pop us out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ross. No problem. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening.